Hey, FedHeads. Welcome to another episode of Sharing Our Pairings. We're going to be here pairing the Warfighter Tobacco Company 762 Garrison with a couple of uh, couple whiskeys, a couple rums. I guess it's a couple scotches and a couple rums. Um, so light up a cigar, get your drink ready, and we'll be right back. Hey, FedHeads. Welcome back. Uh, hope you got yourself a cigar while we were away. I mean, we didn't give you much time, but we gave you a little bit. I mean, hopefully if you're watching, you've already got your, you've already got everything ready to go. And let me make sure we're live here because it's not showing up on my little Facebooks. Yeah, we live. All right. So uh, Dennis is out this week. Um once again, he'll be, he'll hopefully be back next week. I think um, we'll we'll see and we'll let you know. But in the meantime, we've got our good friend John, the cigar surgeon McTavish here. John, how you doing, buddy? Good, Trippy. How you doing? Back from the dead. Back to a uh, guest co-host yet again because uh, you know it's summer, or at least it is up here because we skipped right over spring. So I'm ready to pair and uh, so smoke and. It's it's uh, like 75 degrees out right now in my garage with a t-shirt that's suspiciously the exact same color as yours. Hashtag no planning. No, not at all. Mine, mine's not a developing palette shirt, but uh, still. We could probably hook you up. I mean, we probably have the budget for it. You know a guy? I know a guy. Um, it might come out of my salary, but, you know, I know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here smoking the Warfighter. Um, this is the 762 Garrison Edition. For those who aren't aware, um, they, they do an interesting thing for their six, well, their six core line blends. Um, they each, they have two lines. They have these, uh, and each one has three blends. Um, so the two lines are the garrison, which is, uh, kind of the, uh, you know, it's when you're, when you're, when you're, uh, on the home front looking nice, got your, uh, your dress blues on or whatever they call them in the army. I'm not sure. Hashtag fancy. Fancy yeah, pants. Yeah, they're just kind of fancier. And then they've got the Field Edition, which is kind of a uh, FDE colored band that looks, it looks very like, it looks like the kind of thing you would take out of a crate that got shipped over to, to the desert. Camos. Um, yeah, exactly. It like, like it would come in an ammo can or something. Um, but then they, within those, the, each one has a 5.56, a 7.62, and a 50 cal, which of course, are named after uh, ammunition calibers that are frequently used by the U.S. military. Um, and tonight, it's a great we're effect. The, we're smoking the seven six two. I've I've heard rumors that John has a bunch of fun facts uh, about seven six two, but I'll talk about the blend a little bit first. Um, the seven six two is a risotto wrapper from Nicaragua with a Nicaraguan binder and fillers from Nicaragua and the Dominican Republic, um, and they. They qualify it as medium strength, with it, which I would agree with. It's mm -hmm. not too strong, but it's got some some bite to it. It's got a little bit of spice, which I like. They come out of the uh, they're, they're now out of the Placencia factory out of uh, Nicaragua, correct? Yes. Previously out of an unnamed factory, the Dominican Republic, which Trippy does a fantastic. If you guys have checked it out, the uh, Cigar Federation IPCPR coverage back in 2017, which seems like a long time ago. Uh, Trippy has a great interview uh, with the guys from Warfighter, and you should check it out because there's a lot of really cool information. And 
they got uh, they got a booth award, which was really cool. Yeah, the best. I think it was the best new midsize booth or the best new small booth. I think they had a double booth, so I think it would have been midsize. Um, but small might be one to two slots. I don't know. Um, but either way, they had a really sweet booth. And if, if, like John said, if you haven't watched the interview, go check it out. If for nothing else than just to just see their booth. So, what do you think of the cigar so far? So it's um this and I'm. I'm can't believe I'm saying this live on the air, but I've been saving my warfighters because I want to sit down and do a proper review. Um, but I knew we were going to do the show and I've got, you know, I've got a few to work with. So I was like, we we're talking, you know, do we go to the 50 cal? We'll go with the five, five, six and the seven, six, two kind of seemed like the right cigar for the show because it's kind of right in the middle. Uh, we saw that, uh, that Habano Rosado wrapper and we're thinking, you know, that might be a great option for pairing yeah. and maybe even some more advanced pairings. Um, it, it starts out, it's got, you know what? You know I love that habano. You know I love that spice. Um, it's just got that great white pepper spice. It just kind of sits on your palate like a like a hot Indian dish or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's nice. And I'm you know I'm trying to retrohale here and trying to get my head around it while maintaining my uh, my speaking notes. But um, so far so good. Uh, obviously that band is sexy. Got that nice silver band. Uh, packaging is sharp. I, I love it when a new company uh, comes on the market and then you look at their packaging, the marketing, and it just seems like they've been around for five or six years because it's mm-hmm. just, they've got it all covered right, right from the boxes to the swag, which by the way, they've got some really cool swag. And it occurs to me that I should have got a warfighter shirt for the show. Cause I really like their shirts. They're like, Oh, their they're shirts are awesome. really cool. Yeah. Um, and I thought about, I've got a couple hats that have like the Velcro and I thought about wearing the, uh, the warfighter, the rubber patch that they that they sell yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. on a hat, but I decided to wear my Captain America hat since uh, since America. I just just watched. Well, partially because it's America, partially because I watched Infinity War over the weekend, which is pretty sweet. We can talk about that in the uh, in the full spoilers uh, post draw show, maybe. Oh, I would love to. Let's do yeah. that. But first, let's talk about some uh, some fun seven six two facts before we get into our pairings. I want to hear hear some of your research. So a lot of people might not know this, but, uh, you know, because I think of Canadians, what Canadians know about guns. Uh, first of all, per capita, I think uh, Canada is number three in the world for uh, per capita firearm ownership. And I happen to be in the uh, quote unquote Texas of Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. But I did do a little bit of research because, you know, I love that research. So uh, obviously the th- three sizes, the 5.56, five, the 7.62 and the 50 cal. The 5.56 five, is the most common round used by the American Army. It's also the standard round used by the NATO Army. Uh, 7.62 is the standard round used by the NATO Army and used by uh, battle rifles of the American armies throughout World War One, World yeah. War Two, and Korea. Also, it's a it's a great round when you just absolutely need to obliterate something. Um, but the 7.62, what that means, because it's science millimeters, uh, and and actually the corresponding um, freedom degrees is is I think 30 cal is essentially the the essential equivalent in caliber, roughly. Roughly, it's a, roughly. it's actually uh, 0.308 caliber. Right. Uh, yeah. So like so like slightly if you off. Buy a rifle that. So this is a really confusing thing that happens with 5.56 and with 7.62. Uh-huh. So if you buy a rifle that's 308 Winchester. Um, it's not safe to use 7.62. If you buy a yeah. 7.62 rifle, it's safe to use 308 in there because it's the exact same size. Um, the NATO cartridges are just a little more, a little hotter. Yeah. Uh, 
So if, if you have stuff that's rated for something lower, you don't want to use something that's a little more powerful. Can consult your local gun expert before you uh, switch out cartridges because uh, that could ruin your entire day. Um, but the 762 designation is the internal diameter of the barrel at the at the lens. So that's the measurement of the internal diameter of that. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, the Russian caliber. So a lot of people think 762. They they automatically think of the AK-47. Interestingly enough. The AK-47 rounds, the the Russian rounds, and some of the Chinese rounds can actually be 7.82 caliber, which is kind of funny. That happens a lot in the gun world where they coin a they coin a name, and then over time it slightly changes, and they're oh. just they're just like, eh, we'll just leave it with the old name. So, some of the common rifles uh, that that have either through history or currently using 7.62 round is the M1 carbine, of course. One of the most famous rifles, uh, the Springfield, the M14, the AK-47, which everyone knows, uh, the French FN Fell, and the uh, Hector, Hector and uh, uh, Koch, Hector and Koch uh, G3 battle rifle. But um, you know the issue is the 7.62 is a very penetrative round. I mean, you could be standing on the side of a tree, and that round will go through the tree, through your uh, if you have, if you've got body armor, through your body armor, and through you. Um, the problem is the 7.62 weighs a lot more than a 5.56. So, mm. you know, the issue, the reason that NATO and the United States switched over is because uh, the, the thinking was you need a high penetrative round with long distance. But most of the engagements were typically around 300 yards, 300 freedom yards. So it was kind of overkill. And frankly, when you're carrying out ammo that weighs significantly more than a 5.56, they realized, well, we'll use a 5.56, which is still extremely lethal, even above 300 yards. But you can carry way more ammo. And at the end of the day, yeah. if you run out of ammo, buddy, you're in trouble in a fight. So it turns out having more ammo and, you know, engaging at the normal rounds or the normal rate that you normally do, probably best to go. So, um, you know, all the main battle, all the main, uh, pardon me, rifles are 5.56. Five, five, They're still 7.62 in, in wide use. But that's a little quick history of the 7.62 for those who are wondering. So 7.62, the stuff that it's still used in is a lot of like the... Uh, the the U.S. doesn't really use battle rifles anymore. They've really kind of switched to assault rifles. Yeah. Um, but they still use designated marksman rifles, DMRs. Right. A lot of those are like, uh, I'm trying to remember what the military name is. The civilian version is the AR-10. Yeah. Um, but something like that. That's basically an AR-15 scaled up. Uh, and Scott Jansen, uh, he, of course, is El Presidente over at Warfighter Tobacco. He he says we need to send him some addresses and he'll get us a couple of shirts. Oh, uh, every, everybody in the comments is trying to jump in on that deal. <laughs> I mean, seriously though, like like their patches um, are super cool. You really got to check out their swag page, and that's what I was talking about. Like for a company that hasn't been around for seven years, their swag game's on point. Their shirts are on point. Their hats are on point. Um, it's it's just cool stuff. It's cool stuff, you know. And we didn't really talk about the fact that it's it's veteran owned and operated. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, these guys aren't pretend warriors. These guys have been out in the thick of things. Uh, some of them still active duty. Actually, one of the guys is still active duty. Um, but, you know, these are guys that have, that have, that have seen the real deal, uh, been out there protecting your freedom. So, you know, it's, it's always nice to see a veteran owned company and support a veteran owned company. And, um, you know, just a little shout out for Cigars for Warriors because, uh, Unfortunately, Cigars for Warriors can't take donations from uh, cigar companies anymore, so they're relying on your donations. So since we're talking about a veteran-owned company, consider donating either cigars or cash to Cigars for Warriors because uh, shipping costs a lot. And, uh, you know, if you're out, in the, you're out in the thick of things, you're out in the desert, you're bored, you want a cigar, you know, they really appreciate it. 
Yeah, and um, with a lot of companies, I I don't I'm not a hundred percent positive that uh, Warfighter does this. With a lot of companies, if you order a box and you say take five out and send them, like Barry was saying last week, a lot of a lot of retailers or companies that are uh, shipping direct to the consumer, like Warfighter, will do that for you. Mm-hmm. Super good guys. So I'm actually getting um, I'm starting to get some cocoa off the retro hill which is um, kind of a really nice counterbalance to that spice. I got a little bit of woodiness and uh, maybe a little bit of earth underneath that. Like, um, I don't know how to describe that. It's not like a potting soil. It's like um, like a rich kind of uh, volcanic soil. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It reminds me of like uh, like that almost black, really dark uh-huh. like clay kind of soil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice though. Really, uh, like it's like it's mineral kind of what I was hoping rich, for. I guess. Say again? Mineral rich, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The term that comes to mind. Well, this, this is kind of the profile Dominican. I was hoping. Yeah, nice, nice chunky Nicaraguan soil. Um, I was, um, I was really hoping for this profile because uh, that's what I was aiming for on my pairings tonight. So I was either going to look like a big dummy, or I was going to look look uh, like I had my stuff together, and hopefully I look like my stuff together. So. I mean, I I looked like kind of a dummy last week. I uh, a couple of my pairings were just way off. Um, and I'm hoping I'm pairing one of the same things here, so I'm hoping that uh, that that doesn't happen this time. But let's get into our pairings and talk about them. Copy um, that. I'm trying to decide whether to switch my pairings up because I know your second <laughs> pairing is the same as one of mine. So Thanks. I think I'm going to switch them up. Um, so I'm going to so, go in the wrong order here. So just to let you know, the reason I did that is because my thought was it's going to be really sweet, and I wasn't sure uh, whether that I was going to overpower the whiskey. So, uh, so my first pairing here is going to be something that's that's new to me. It came out a couple years ago. The Lagavulin 8. Oh, Um, girl. So ever since I heard about this, I was intrigued by it. Um, So this is a... It was originally a limited edition. I'm not 100% sure that it still is. I think it's now regular production since it's now two years later and it's still on the shelves. Um, So I think they're probably making quite a bit of it. Um, It's interesting because it was a celebratory whiskey that they did for their 200th anniversary, but it's half the age of the youngest whiskey they normally produce, Um, which it's it's really curious to me. It makes me wonder if they did it partially for that reason, um, and they just kind of wanted to find a way to make a younger whiskey because they were running out of the (laughs) 16-year-old stuff. People, Uh, stop buying it. Stop taking all our 16-year-old Lagavulin. I mean, that's the problem with the entire whiskey industry right now is that, especially when your youngest product is 16 years old, anything they're making now, they had to think, what are people going to be buying 16 years from now Um, and try to produce that amount? Um, And if you mess up, that can be a very expensive mistake on either side. I mean, I think what I like about the younger peated whiskeys is that if you really want... um, sort of a more full peat forward expression you actually need a younger whiskey because the longer it spends spends in cask the less that peat's going to influence the whiskey so um you know typically in the younger whiskeys or no age statement whiskeys you can get a lot of peat coming through which is you know your yeah. peat head. it's awesome exactly and I, th- I think uh you do get a little bit more peat with this one um interestingly the color i, I don't have any lagavulin 16 at home but the color to me looks lighter it's kind of like um, it's a, that straw color, yeah. Yeah, it's like a little darker than an Ardbeg, but not by a whole lot. Um, but anyway, Lagavulin was founded in 1816. Of course, 2016 was their uh, 200th anniversary. Um, they have two wash stills and two spirit stills, but I couldn't find any information 
on how much whiskey they actually produce per year. Um, I'm not sure why. I bet, it, the, I bet it's probably like 330,000 gal, freedom gallons or so. That sounds about right to me. I mean, be, it, I guess. it can't be a ton no. since they really only have one whiskey that's attainable to people. Um, and it's fairly expensive compared to most other entry-level yeah. whiskeys. Um, so, you know, I think I think it's safe to say that three, 330,000 freedom gallons is probably about right. Uh, they chose eight-year. And again, this it really makes me wonder if they decided... Uh, we're going if they decided we're going to do this for our 200th anniversary we're going to do an eight year or if they said we need to make an eight year because we need something younger right. uh, this is a very good reason um, so alfred bernard uh who was a uh i'm not sure exactly how to qualify him i don't he wasn't really a whiskey reviewer but he was uh some sort of prominent whiskey aficionado uh, he visited the, the distillery in 1886, tasted their whatever their eight year was at the time, and said that it was exceptionally fine. And oh. that's their justification for creating this for their 200th anniversary. So this is kind of paying homage to that, um, and they call it a re a reinterpretation of the spirit that he had at that time. Nice. Uh, so obviously the youngest whiskey in here is eight years old. A really interesting thing about it is it is 48% ABV or 96 Woo! proof. Uh, you don't see a lot of eight-year whiskeys at that high proof. I, uh, I dare say you've seen almost none. Exactly. Uh, yeah. it, so I think that kind of adds to the, the specialness of it a little bit because it, it is a little stronger than most whiskeys you're going to find in this uh, age range and this price range because I think it's only around, I think I paid about 60 bucks for it, which means it's probably about like 50 at most in most states. Um, it's pretty maybe reasonable. Maybe a little cheaper. So I'm gonna take a couple sips and let's see what uh, let's see what John thinks about his first pair. Sounds good. So uh, tonight's pairings, I kind of went with. Uh, first of all, I, w- I wanted to kind of go what I classify as an American style pairing. So these are these are pairings that you would commonly see done in the United States, very common brands in the United States, and that's what I kind of tried to stick to. The first off is a classic, Johnny Walker, um, and you know for all the whiskey snobs out there, this is actually my favorite Johnny Walker by a country mile. Um, yeah. A country freedom mile. So this is the uh, Johnny Walker Green Label, and, it, and take ca- careful note: it is not a blended whiskey; it is a blended malt Scotch whiskey. And I'll get into that in a second. But it is I was a about fifteen to say, years. What does that mean? Yeah, it's fifteen years. So that means, like Trippy was saying on his, that means the youngest whiskey in this is fifteen years. That doesn't mean the oldest is fifteen. They almost certainly have some older whiskey in there, probably in the twenty to thirty year range. Just a couple drops to keep it honest. I'm losing Nicaragua. There she goes. Love you, Nicaragua. Love Nicaragua. It's the, uh, you know, there's no snow, but there's a little bit of wind, and that's just how it rolls here in the spring, summer of Canada. Anyways, hold that up. It's uh, a little bit more, you know, what you'd expect, like an ex-bourbon cask whiskey to be. It's kind of that amber color. A um, little bit about Johnny Walker. Now, I know you talked about them uh, a couple shows ago, and I talked about them a uh, number of shows before that, but Johnny Walker uh, essentially really created blended whiskey. They, they, there was not a market. Blended whiskey did not exist. There was single malt whiskey. There was whiskey, and there was no blended whiskey. They invented when, um, blended whiskey in 1867, and uh, they're huge. So for all the whiskey snobs out there who are thinking, you know, blended whiskey, this is blended Scotch malt. It's entirely Scotch malt. It has no grain whiskey in it whatsoever. It is 100% Scotch whiskey. They've it together. 
and they try to keep the flavor consistent between bottle and bottle, and they use a number of different um, distilleries to do that. Because they're using other distilleries' products, they can't tell you, uh, officially, they can't tell you what those whiskeys are. It's against the, the laws in Scotland. Um, but Johnny Walker is one of the most recognized uh, Scotch brands in the world, sold in almost every single country, literally every country in the world. Annual sales, get this, over 180 million liters of whiskey, or just about just over 45 and a half million freedom gallons, which is just, I mean, as a That's as a measure, insane. it's insane. I think the math of it is like 70 percent or 80 percent of the world's whiskey is and is Johnny Walker. It's worth pointing out there are a lot of distilleries in Scotland. Um, that we love their single malts mm-hmm. and they barely make any money off of single malts. They make yeah. pretty much all their money off of Johnny Walker. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of distilleries out there who for many years you couldn't buy their product because all of it, yeah. every single drop was going into Johnny Walker one form or another. And they've got a lot of expressions. Um, of course, uh, again, Trippy talked about this, but they've got the iconic square bottle, um, it's obviously a talking point, but it's also smart economics because you can you can fit better um, packaging on the shelf in boxes. There's less breakage, uh, so that's kind of what they're known for. It's an iconic bottle; nobody else uses it. Um, and they uh, they started that bottle in 1820. I've already talked about this was introduced in 1867. This particular scotch was uh, discontinued in 2012, which made me extremely upset. Um, and then I saw it on the shelf. I didn't even hear any news about coming back. I happened to see it on the shelf passing through some some store and I thought maybe they had old stock so I bought up a bunch because I love it uh, but it returned it officially returned in 2016 reintroduced by Diageo boo Diageo boo I don't know it's it's a big drinking company so people like to hate the big guys I don't know I, you know I don't know why I mean you know who else is owned by Diageo everybody these guys oh yeah they're I mean they're a huge, huge they own huge everybody company. they own everybody um, so some of the some of the areas if you if you're prone to scotch areas whiskey areas uh they have whiskey in there from the space side from highland from the lowland and from islands um and uh, you know if you're if you're one of those guys who's like go oh, johnny walker green doesn't taste the same as it did when they discontinued mm. no untrue it's the exact same blend recipe um so they discontinued it they brought it back i guarantee you that johnny walker has taken uh, great care to make sure their notes are complete and their master distilleries, master distillers know exactly what they're doing when they blend. Um, so it's the same. It's the same recipe. My palate confirms the same recipe. I'm gonna take some sips while you talk about how your pairing is going. I mean, that's the whole thing with Scotch. Is every Scotch is like. I don't believe there's any distilleries out there that will sell you a bottle of single barrel Scotch. Um, pretty much every bottle out there is a blend of different barrels. Um, ranging in age and their goal a hundred percent of the time is to keep it exactly the same bottle mm-hmm. to bottle. Um, and I mean, Johnny Walker is one of the best at that. If you, but, if you buy Coke you don't want to get a different Coke every, well, I, when I say you, I mean the consumers that are out there that are paying money for this product, they do not want a different product every time they bring it off the shelf. It has to be exactly the same year over year for 20 years, 30 years, and, you know, that's what these guys do. They taste it, and they make sure it is exactly the same so that the Johnny Walker you buy today is the same Johnny Walker you buy 10 years from now. Yeah, it's um, it's very similar to making cigars. Um, mm-hmm. Cigars have a little more variance, typically, but, um, you know, scotch is the same. And before we before we move on, I want to thank our sponsor, the Cigar Federation Store. Um, if you haven't already, pick up some Bishop Blends from Black Label Trading Company. They've got a couple boxes left. <laughs> 
Um, and if history is any indication, you're not going to see any more until next year. I, I got I just, my grubby order. I got my grubby order in like immediately when I got the, the notification. I was subscribed to the newsletter. I got a bishop's plan. I got some Findlas Mundos from Nomad. Um, I got some other goodies in there too. But uh, I understand they're on delivery to a good friend of mine. Yeah, and I I, I actually got my box of bishops today, nice. uh, which I'm very excited to smoke. So moving on to my Lagavulin. Uh, it's interesting because it's it's reminiscent of Lagavulin 16. But it's not. It's certainly not the same thing. It's a little more aggressive, I guess. Um, and I'm not. I don't know off the top of my head what the uh, the proof of the Lagavulin 16 is. I'm guessing it's lower than 48. I don't. I don't feel like it could be 48. But there's definitely more peat in here. There's definitely a lot of fruit, like fruity sweetness. Um, and I'm I'm really just surprised by kind of how elegant it is for how rough it is because it it starts off really elegant and like then you get that hit of smoke from the peat and then when you swallow you get like that burn on the back of your tongue um i don't know i'm gonna have i I need to take a couple more sips i don't think i was uh i don't think i was sipping enough while you were talking there for for pairing science so one of the things i really like about johnny walker and a lot of people talk about the flavor and they say smooth and that's not really a flavor descriptor Mm-mm. But that is a true description of a lot of Johnny Walkers. They want to make it easy drinking. They don't want to make it harsh. They don't want any one flavor note to stand out. Uh, and that's certainly the case for the Green Label. What I like about the Green Label is that it's very reminiscent of sort of all the best things you want out of ex-bourbon type uh, whiskeys. It's got that really nice sort of sweet corn-influenced bourbon, um, little tiny little bit of spice. But the spice doesn't linger. It's got like a medium to short finish. Um, and you're left with kind of this nice, you know, medium strength sweetness on the palate without being syrupy or, or cloyingly sweet. Um, and it's a great pairing. It's a fantastic pairing with the uh, with the Garrison 7.62. Um, in fact, I'm actually getting, because of the whiskey, I'm starting to get a lot more woody character out of the cigar. So I'm getting a little oak. I'm getting a little cedar. Um, and the sweetness kind of offsets a little of that white pepper, which is sad because I like the white pepper. Um, but it does push that white pepper aside and the sweetness brings out some different flavors that I wasn't getting in the cigar. Yeah. I'm getting a lot more, uh, like chocolate and wood from the cigar and less of the spice. This Lagavulin has an extraordinarily long finish. Mm. Um, and it's like almost peppery to me. Like it's almost got a little bit of spice to it. I can see that. Um, it's definitely sweeter. It doesn't taste as like oily and medicinal as Lagavulin 16. It's kind of, uh, it's weird because it's more aggressive and friendlier at the same time Mm. where it's kind of got a little bit of that, uh, that thinness that makes it a little bit, a little bit less, uh, like cloying on your tongue. Right. But at the same time, it's got a lot more sweetness up front and then a way longer, like smoky finish. One of the things I forgot to mention on the Johnny Walker 15 Green Label is that it is 43%, which is always nice. Uh, you know, the minimum it has to be bottled at is 40%, so it's always nice when they go above the minimum. 43% is nice. It's still got a little bit more character uh, without being, you know, thin or anything that sometimes I find in 40% whiskeys. Yeah. Um, we got a lot of comments about, a lot of comments referencing, as we did last week, I think anytime I have whiskey on the show, this is going to happen. Uh, we've got a bunch of comments from fellow members of the Whiskey Tribe, which is the, the Whiskey Vault channel on YouTube. They've got a whole whole Facebook nice. group thing with a bunch of inside jokes. Um, 
They call themselves Magnificent Bastards, which I think is a fantastic moniker for uh, somebody who appreciates whiskey. Absolutely. So Evan Kirshner wants to know, can you get barrel selects of scotch? Mm-hmm. Yes, but but sort of, not really. Uh, the barrel selects you can get are typically uh, from a third party that buys the barrel and then puts it in bottles for you and sells it to you. Correct. And there's and there's a lot of them. I a mean, I t- I've talked uh, on the show before about the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, which is one of the bigger ones. Um, but there's a number of... Um, and, and of course, all of them escape me off the top of my brain, which is funny because uh, I own like all of them. Like, like yeah. I have a, I have an expression from you know five different independent bottlers, um, and it's the same thing. You know, they can say that they're bottling it, and it's, it's a whiskey from Speyside or whatever. Um, but that's a great way to try whiskey from a distillery that you really like or you really love. And it's going to be a completely like I've had McCollins uh, from an independent bottler and mm-hmm. it was like among the best McCollin I've ever had in my life. Um, so it's got that core influence of McCollin, but it's different. It's not, and it's not the same. I've had a lot of Lafroigs from, uh, from independent bottlers and it's different because when you buy a bottle of Lafroig 10 or Lafroig uh, quarter cask or uh, triple wood, is that what it's called? Triple wood, yeah. Okay. For some reason, triple wood didn't sound right. I thought it was triple something else. Um, but when you get those, they're blending together a bunch of scotches that are for, all from the Lafroy distillery, but are different ages, different parts of the warehouse. Um, and they're always going for the same flavor. When you get one of those single bottle, or uh, when you get one of those uh, independent bottling versions, you're getting a single barrel and you're you're finding out one of the puzzle pieces that goes into a normal production bottle. Yeah, and you can get I mean you can get f- like really funky expressions from a distillery. Um, I mean I've had you know one of the one of the fun parts about going to a uh, tasting if your local uh, bottle shop has tastings is that you try it out and you're like well I, you know and you do it blind a lot of the time so you go I, I have no idea what this is. And you find out afterwards it's from a distillery that you drink all the time, and that's kind of the fun thing. It's like, well, it doesn't it doesn't really taste like anything, and that's because, you know, there's so much variance between um, barrel. I mean, there's just there's a million different characteristics and dials that that go into uh, each individual barrel. So you can have from the same distillery you've had a hundred bottles from, and you have an expression, and it doesn't taste anything else like anything. And and sometimes they screw up. Sometimes they put something in a cask, and they're like, oh yeah, no, we we don't want that at all. And that's why they sell it. They're like, yeah, that doesn't really match our style. So somebody bottles it up and then, you know, crazy whiskey fiends like us buy it up and go, I love it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And a lot of times it was a barrel that like the distiller just couldn't figure out something to do with it. Uh-huh. Um, so they just let it sit around until somebody was willing to buy it. It's like so having I'm, extra tobacco. You don't know what to do with. Yeah, exactly. Um, and which... I wasn't going to mention it, but it's, it's kind of like the lost and found where it's like, right. you know, for some reason this barrel didn't work out. So they left it sitting in the warehouse for an extra 15 years longer than they meant uh-huh. to. And then some guy buys it and puts it in bottles and you get a really weird, interesting expression from a, a distillery. So one flavor note that I just noticed in the Lagavulin is medicinal, but not in the same, not in like that Laphroaig Band-Aid kind of medicinal. There's a tiny bit of that, right. but it's more of like, uh, like a cough syrup kind of medicinal. Uh. Which, I mean, I, I love those weird notes because people think you're crazy <laughs> for enjoying them, but I love them. What what I think I love about the um, peat is, to me, it's a little bit like uh, hops in an IPA. Uh, mm-hmm. You can you can 
sort of, and, and this is going to sound really terrible, but you can run over some of the impurities or maybe young characteristics of a whiskey by putting more peat in there. Um, and you can do the same thing with a beer. If you put more hops in there, you know, you can run over some of the unbalanced character, which sometimes you try on purpose. Um, but, you know, the nice thing about having more peat is that some of those, you know, more um, alcohol estuary characteristics in a younger whiskey, which I'm not a huge fan of, um, sometimes you can get those nicely run over by a peat and you're not picking those up so much on a, on a younger whiskey like that. Yeah, and that that's, I think, why a lot of people have a hard time with peat, um, similar to the way a lot of people have a hard time with IPAs, is that it's so overpowering that at yeah. first it's hard to get past. Once yeah. you c- learn to appreciate it, you can kind of taste the flavors underneath that it's covering up. Um, and Evan Kirshner has a follow-up question. He wants to know how you know it's an independent bottler. Usually it'll say on the bottle, uh, there aren't, I, I can't think of any independent bottlers that you can just walk into a liquor store and buy. Um, because typically if they're doing an independent bottling, you're probably going to get somewhere between four to 500 bottles most out of that barrel. Um, See, I'm, I'm lucky cause I'm in the whiskey capital of Canada, yeah. so I can walk into the shop right now and I can pick up pretty much every independent bottler expression wow. off the shelf. Um, and you know, everything, everything across the map, like I could probably buy something from a hundred different distilleries from an independent bottler right now. So I'm, I'm very spoiled up here. Um, I, I, I don't recall ever seeing an independent bottle in a store. Um, I've only wow. seen it like on the secondary market or when I've gone to a friend's house, who's part of the SM, um, SMWS. Um, but uh, they're hard to find. Uh, your best bet, if you want something from an independent bottler, is something like uh, the Whiskey Exchange or yeah. uh, Master of Malt or something like can't, that. Can't do Master Malt anymore. Oh, you can't? Uh-uh. I didn't know that. Whiskey News, they got bought out. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and uh, no longer available in the United States, which is kind of sad. Uh, that's kind of, I think, one of the things that pisses people off a lot is when these large drink companies buy up a, uh, a distributor like that or a bottler like that, and then they completely change their distribution. And I know there's a lot of people online uh, in, in members of the whiskey clubs that are very upset about that because that was their way of getting these fantastic whiskeys to them in the United States. Now they can't. Oh, that sucks. It's crap. Um, I'm really I'm really sad about that. Oh. But uh, anyway, Evan... Uh, you can, I'm sure that if you look on the internet, you can hunt down a couple independent bottlings, um, but they're not easy to find and they're never going to be cheap. No. Uh, I think probably the minimum price is like, if it's something that's pretty young from a big distillery that, that uh, isn't that sought after, you might be able to get something for like 60 or 70 bucks, but generally you're talking upwards of 150 or so. Now that, that being said, Trippy. I've seen some independent bottling, um, like I was talking about the McCollin earlier. Uh, I had an independent bottler of McCollin. I think it was 22 years old or 24 years old, and it was like half the price of what an equivalent bottled <laughs> McCollin would be. And it was from a time period where you know they were producing really, really great whiskey. So sometimes you know you can get a gem yeah. for a mint. And again, like Trippy was saying, it's going to cost you. I mean, you got to pay to play for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you're looking for a really great um, a really great expression from a distillery that you know really well. Um, you can you can make that happen. And uh, Scott Jansen from Warfighter says he respects that you're flying that Nicaraguan flag, and you're really flying it right now. I'm really flying it. <laughs> S- SOS Nicaragua. Um, for those who aren't aware, there's um, 
Uh, I would I would characterize it as social upheaval right now. Uh, the Nicaraguan people are yeah. going through some 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 times, and uh, you know, obviously uh, flying it because the cigars are made out of Nicaragua, um, but also as uh, solidarity for the Nicaraguan people. Um, both Trippy and I, uh, Nicaragua has got a very special place in our heart, as do all the people in Nicaragua. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, but we're gonna move on to our next pairing. Uh, I believe we're pairing the same thing. We're both pairing Zafra Twenty One. Zafra, love um, it. So good. Look at it. It's a it's a so very good. good, very old rum uh, that is surprisingly affordable. Yeah, like, it's crazy. I think a, a bottle of this is like seventy bucks or something at most. Um, it might even be a little less than that. Um, but it's twenty one years old, aged in bourbon barrels. Actually, twenty one. Yeah, it's actually 21 years old. And other than that, I, I haven't been able to find a lot of information. Do you have a, do you have a cheat sheet there, John, <laughs> you, that you've got a bunch of info about? You know I do my homework, Trivi. You know I do my homework. So uh, first of all, the, the term zafra is a Spanish word coming uh, that describes the act of harvesting sugarcane. So that's where that came from. Now, they kind of play, I'm going to put zafra on, on point here, on fire here a little bit, because um, the way they phrase this lends you to believe a certain thing, which isn't necessarily true. So they say after the harvest, their skilled master distiller transforms the gathered cane into rum, <laughs> which makes you think that ah. it's a, call, uh, a rum agricole. Um, now, we've talked about this on the show before. Uh, there's two types of rum. There's industrial rum, which is 90%, 85% of the world's rum. And there's a, there's a uh, rum agricole, which is agriculture rum. And all that means is it's the, the pre- um, the pre-distillation point of the rum. So most rums are turned into molasses. In fact, a lot of cases, the molasses comes as a byproduct of the sugarcane process because you're trying to get sugar from the sugarcane. That's where the money is. You take the molasses that's left over and you can distill that and make delicious rum. The other side, the other way to do it is rum agricole where you take the, the sugarcane and you press it. And out of that pressing, you get juice, which gives you agricole rum. Now, obviously the downside of that is you're not getting as much money for that sugar cane as if you sold the sugar, which is where your money is, and then turned that into molasses. Um, so this is just so we're all clear. This is an industrial rum. They turn it into molasses and they make rum. There's no downside to it. That's that's how most of the rum in the world is made. Uh, but I just want to be clear because you know they're playing a little fast and loose with the description. They're kind of avoiding that term, um, and I think they should embrace it. That's how the the rum is made. Uh, of course, like most rum. That's industrial. It's uh, using column distillation, which is a continual continual distillation. Um, that's where your money is, so you can continually run your distillation process. There's really no downtime. That's how uh, Irish whiskey is made as well with column still. Um, column stills are very efficient and produce a crap ton of whiskey, which is why I use it. Um, so Don Bleeker asked, is it better than Florida Cognac 25 or just different? I would say just different. Just different. Um, but the the... Big thing that it's got over Florida Cognac 25 is Florida Cognac 25 typically runs about 150 bucks a bottle. It's a few ducats. Uh, this I just did some research. My local Total Wine has it for 46.99. That's absurd. For and, a 21-year-old spirit. And I, and I want to be clear on something because um, sometimes in the rum industry, the age statements are a little fast and loose. A lot of rums are actually made by the Solera method. So in the Solera method, you're averaging the age of the rum that's going in there. So you've got some three-year rum, some eight-year rum, some seven-year rum, and maybe some 25. This Safra, because the, the laws in the United States are very clear that if you put an age statement on the rum and it's not a Solera method, that has to follow the age statement rules, which means 21 is the youngest 
whiskey that's in there or the youngest rum that's in there. So this Afra could absolutely have 30 year rum or 35 year rum yeah. or even 40. Um, but you know, you're guaranteed 21 years, which for how much did you say it was? $47. $47 for a 20 year old, 21 year old rum is kind of highway robbery from the perspective of you're robbing from the rum maker. Yeah. Cause that's so cheap. It's <laughs> so cheap. Don says that Florida County 25 is $300 where he is. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not better. I, w- I wouldn't say it's better just, just because it's hard to compare, but it's different. And you could have six bottles for the same price. Ooh. And it's, um, oh God, that's so good. Um, it, I mean, it's like anything, right? It's like any agricultural product takes on the characteristics. So people, people talk all the time, you know, how is Nicaraguan tobacco different from the Dominican tobacco? It's like, well, it's the same as if you grew a carrot in the Dominican Republic and you grow a carrot in yeah. Nicaragua, those carrot it's a carrot. You know what a carrot tastes like? Those carrots aren't going to taste the same. It's, it's weird to think about, um, mm-hmm. but it's kind of the fun thing. So when you talk about an end product like this, where, you know, the environment and the, and the humidity and the temperature and the soil and all that, fa- all factors into the end product, especially after 21 years, uh, it's, it's radically different than Florida Canyon. I love Florida Canyon. I drink Florida Canyon all yeah. the time, probably more than I should. Um, but it's, it's very different than a Zafra, which is, um, by the way, made out of Panama. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we forgot to mention that. Oh. Man, this rum is fantastic. Oh, it's so good, right? I it, mean, It's so sweet and, like, I hate to use the term, but it's so smooth. Like, there's no... It starts off with some astringency on the nose. And when you first taste it, you get that. Um, but I feel like having let it sit in the, the glass for half an hour here... And letting it evaporate a little bit, I feel like that's really helped it with the uh, with that astringency. I feel like I'm not getting almost any of that on the palate anymore. Yeah, if you if you have a white rum or a rum that hasn't been aged in casks, um, I often find, especially with the younger rum or a rum white rum or anything like that, rum tends to be for me really alcohol forward. And by alcohol forward, I mean that estery quality, like uh, rubbing mm-hmm. alcohol. I am not at all. My palate is very sensitive to rubbing alcohol, which is why I'm a bit of a whiskey snob because I don't like younger whiskeys where that's poured. And I find in a lot of cases with younger rums, I can taste that immediately. Like Trippie was saying, you get that a little bit on the nose, but underneath that, there's almost like um, like a slightly toasted brown sugar. And it's, I mean, it's like you almost want to chew it. It's that. Yeah, kind. it's it's really like thick and rich. Oh. Um, syrupy yes syrupy is the it's right got like oranges and like tropical fruit i mean it's and, and it's sweet tropical there's no question exactly you're right. not gonna found this there's like banana and like mango-ish kind of sweetness um like if, if you don't like sweet rum this isn't a rum for you but if you like like bourbons you're probably gonna like this rum because uh, it, it really gets a lot of that bourbon character and it's got a lot of that like uh, that woody barrel note kind of flavor. And these are because um, uh, we didn't really talk about this, but um, they're they're master um, they're master uh, oh, blender yeah. barrel. Uh, so they use exclusively bourbon casks, um, and this is of course a blend like we're talking about with whiskey. It's the same idea. They they blend a number of casks together to get a consistent flavor. Uh, but these are all bourbon casks, and I think that kind of comes through. Like it's got that you know that bourbony um, stone fruit vanilla kind of character to it. Yeah, the vanilla kind of peachy, um, mm-hmm. and their their master blender. Uh, I took a note on this. I don't know if you did. He is uh, his name is Francisco Don Pancho Fernandez. And he was actually, they didn't specify where, 
but he's a Cuban rum master blender. Oh. So presumably he he blended rum for one of the big rum companies in Cuba, I would guess. That that you know what that makes a lot of sense now that you say that because I would say next to like Cuban rum, this is probably the closest thing I've tasted that is kind of in that Venn diagram overlapping Cuban rum and I haven't really gotten that from any other country before. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that until just now, but it does have a little bit of that. It doesn't quite have that like grassy bitterness that I get mm-hmm. from Cuban rum, but it's got a touch of that. It's it, I mean it's good. It's really really good. It's mm-hmm. it's a little it's a little too good actually. Yeah, and it, it goes really well with the cigar. I feel like it might go better with like the the broadleaf one. The fifty cal's, yeah. The fifty cal. Um, I agree. Yeah. Just because uh, the sweetness overpowers the cigar a little bit, I think. Ooh. Still good, but yeah, fifty cal is probably a better way to go, and I would definitely avoid the five five six because the sweetness I think would just overpower some of the nuances. Five five six, yep. And uh, before we get on to our last pairing, we're gonna thank our uh, sponsor for the last segment, which is our good friends over at Drew Estate. Uh, they just announced this week, and they're about to launch this weekend, or might even be Friday. So excited! The, oh, the Liga Pravada number so nine excited. Corona Viva. Corona uh, Viva. Man, I'm so excited to try that cigar. Ever since I started seeing those, uh, like uh, kind of around. Back in 2016, when everybody got their stealth releases out, um, we were talking yesterday about how Drew Estate was very blatant with theirs. Um, so we all knew this was coming, but I'm very excited to finally try it. And so they're doing a launch this weekend at the uh, Cigars International Superstore. And then they haven't a- announced exactly when, but over the, the next few months, I'm assuming they'll be rolling out everywhere because um, it is going to be a, a, a full, no- you know, a full uh, regular production cigar. And I it's actually the first regular production Vitola that's launched since Liga Pravada came out in 2000. I can see that. Yeah, I, I, can guess, see that. I guess they added a couple in 2008. Uh, Corona Viva, of course, is my favorite size of the Undercrown by far. Same. So uh, when I when I heard it was so obviously the 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 classic black versus white argument is you know do you like the number nine or do you like the T52 and everyone seems split. No one seems to to sort of step over that like step on both sides of that line. You're either a T52 guy or a Liga 9 guy. Um, but I feel like in a Corona Viva size, oh, that, that Liga 9 could, is gonna that be might money. switch me over. Yeah, the man, I'm just really excited for that cigar. So excited! Now we'll move on to our, our last pairing of the night. Uh, this one last week was a disaster. And I think it might be a disaster this time, but I did bring a straw so I can drop some water in there. This is... Glenn Livet Nadura. Love it. And this is the uh, the heavily peated cask edition. Um, so Glenn Livet, I talked about it last week, but I'll go over it for anybody who missed last week's episode. Uh, they're located near the northern coast of Scotland in a, a little village called Murray. Uh, they were founded in 1824, and the only time they've ever closed, which is pretty rare, is during World War II. Um, kind of needed the barley for the troops. Yeah, exactly. And if you look up pretty much any distillery, they're going to have like 10 years here, 10 years there that they were closed entirely. And they weren't, there was nobody in the building. It was just cleared out. Um, they just had whiskey sitting in the warehouse and probably a security guard watching it. Oh, yeah. Um, and so this is one of the few that has been continuously operated, except for that, that little blip for a couple of years during World War II. Um, 
they are the largest selling whiskey, uh, single malt brand in the U.S. and the second largest in the world. They have seven wash and seven spirit still, stills and produce an astounding six million liters or one and a half million gallons, which is nothing compared to like Johnny Walker. But that's a lot of whiskey for one distillery to be pumping out. Yeah, it is. Uh, Nadura means natural in Gaelic. Um, and originally it was it was basically a, uh, a cask strength Glenlivet that was aged in bourbon barrels. And then, of course, this is the peated whiskey finish. Um, so they've they've aged this one in peated, heavily peated whiskey barrels instead, which I've heard are from Speyside, but I don't know. Um, and it's, of course, bottled at cask strength, which is a ridiculous 61.5%. Oh, yeah. Come get some. <laughs> I uh, I absolutely love the uh, Nadura Sherry Cask. Uh, they had the Nadura Sherry Cask 16, uh, which was kind of my my pairing go-to for cigars all across the world. Oh yeah. Uh, hard to find though, because uh, they they only produced a certain amount of it, and I think it's pretty much gone from the market now. So you can still get a no age statement Sherry version, but um, not quite the same. It's still good, but it's not quite the same. I if I remember correctly, I could be wrong. Um, I think the the cherry version is the uh, the duty free only version, but uh, uh, that might be a different variant. Or, of or it. Canada. Oh, is it in Canada? So maybe yeah, it's oh, a yeah. version then. We're, we're, like I said, we got we got the, you know we got so many Scots up here that we got that whiskey on lockdown. <laughs> Don't mess around. That's Give true. me our whiskey. All right, so I'm gonna take a couple sips of this while you while you talk about your last pairing. So here's a bottle that I don't break out very often, and but it's good. It's it's kind of um, you know, if you're looking for an easy whiskey pairing, uh, whiskey, um, this is kind of another one of my go-to's. Uh, it's also one of the most popular brands for whiskey in North America. This is the Dalmore. Um, it's got that cool uh, stag's head on the on the front, which is really cool. Um, this is their cigar malt reserve. Um, interestingly enough, I don't have the uh, why don't I have the ABV? Oh, oh, there it is. So here's what's interesting is uh, I've never seen another whiskey. This is at 44%. That's is, just a weird number. It, it's a weird number, right? It, it Usually it's either 40, 43, 46, 48, or above. I've never, ever, ever seen another whiskey company come out with a 44, but that's what it is. Um, hold it up here. You can see it's quite a bit darker than the Johnny Walker. Uh, it takes on almost like a, a brown ale color or a, or a red ale color. It's got a much darker color to it. Oh, it smells so good. Um, Dalmore is uh, located on the eastern coast of Scotland in the Northern Highlands. Um, it's actually not that far from Inverness, which makes sense because a lot of distilleries need people to work at them and they need to be near uh, towns and cities. They were founded in 1839, a long time ago, like a lot of uh, whiskey distilleries in Scotland. Uh, they use the Alness River as their water source. Um, they have a total of eight total uh, a total of eight stills. I don't know what the makeup is between wash and spirit, but I suspect it's probably like uh, some weird like five and three or three and five kind of mix between wash and uh, spirit stills. Uh, they, believe it or not, are in the top twenty five of production for s distilleries in the in um, Scotland. So they produce uh, out of eight stills, four point two million liters, uh, one point one million freedom gallons, and that number is actually a couple years out of date. So they could be as high as one point four now. And uh, they weren't really known as a because a lot of a lot of distilleries in Scotland you can go and visit and they've got nice visitor centers and they were really known as a visitor center kind of place, uh, but they put uh, a million pounds 
of which is, I think, uh, two and a half million U.S. dollars or two point two million dollars U.S. in overhauling the distillery and visitor center to make it a lot more friendly. Um, so if you're in the Inverness area, it's definitely worth uh, checking out the Dalmore. Um, so this is uh, matured entirely or initially, pardon me, in American white oak ex-bourbon casks. And then they use 30-year-old Matsulam Oloroso Sherry Butts, which I love Sherry. Uh, and then they use um, Cru Cabernet Sauvignon Wine Bariques as a finisher, um, which is interesting because, again, uh, if you've listened to the show in the past when I've been on, uh, I'm not really typically a fan of whiskeys in wine barrels. Uh, doesn't really hit my palate. Um, this particular one, obviously I own it, so you know I like it. Um, Oh, it smells so good. You can get you can get that that um, Cabernet Sauvignon on the nose. It's definitely got that sort of sweet, crisp Cabernet nose to it. And underneath that, it's got a lot of syrupy bourbon notes. So I'm going to take some sips here and let you talk about how that uh, second, third, third. It's number three. Third pairing mm-hmm. of the night is going for you. Um. So I did a little bit of research, and I don't know what the Glenlivet Naduro was that was uh that was duty-free exclusive. I think it was the Oloroso, mm. um, but it must have just been duty-free exclusive for a short time because I remember being in a duty-free sh- store like three or four years ago, and they had one, um, but th- that must have been old news. Fake news. This, this, this is aggressive <laughs> as a pairing for this, right? Uh, as I expected. Um it's hard to get much flavor out of it because I feel like it's just too hot. I am gonna, I'm gonna add a little bit of water to it here. So while you're doing that, um, this cigar malt is um, is a little intense with the sherry, um, but unlike a lot of sherried whiskeys, and I would normally avoid a sherried whiskey with a Habana wrapper um, because it's you know we talk about whether you want contrasting or complementary. I tend to avoid sherry whiskeys with uh, Habana wrappers because it's too similar. There's there's too much of that pepper running over the pepper that's in the cigar. It's got just enough of the sherry in here that gives you that um, stewed fruit quality without bringing the spice that you normally get from Oloroso Sherry, uh, which I love, uh, but I would avoid in spades. So um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it because it's it's very it's very big. It's got a very big fruity um, stewed fruit quality, and it's uh, almost, believe it or not, more sweet and syrupy than the, uh, than the Zafra. Uh, wow. Um, so a thing that I've always wondered is why do they call it cigar malt? I mean, I get that it's, that it's kind of supposed to go with cigars. Um, but what makes it a cigar malt? What makes it different that makes it pair better with cigars? Is it the sherry finish? So I, I don't have an answer for that. Um, it is marketed towards pairing with cigars 100%, but I suspect what it is, is that what, you know, the, whoever their, their, um, distillery master is. He probably sat down with some cigars and said, you know, I want something that can complement a cigar, uh, that can bring out some of the flavors in the cigar that still has some core scotch flavors, but isn't that, you know, super alcohol forward or super fruity or super bourbony um, that sometimes does run over cigars. And the problem with pairing with cigars is you do have to be careful about the strength. I mean, this cigar malt is not something I would pair with something that had a Connecticut shade wrapper because Connecticut shade is just sometimes too light. Um, and this would run that over, but Habano is good. Uh, that broadleaf from a 50 cal, I think would be outstanding with this. Um, in fact, I think this might pair perfectly with a, with a 50 cal in my mind. So 
the Nadura. The so problem good. I'm having with this is that um, I have loved the Oloroso and the bourbon versions of Nadura. And this one, I feel like the whiskey itself is too thin, mm. which makes the peat kind of take over a little bit. Well, that makes sense. Um, and then you, you end up with a little too much burn from the alcohol mm-hmm. and then a little too much uh, smokiness from the peat. And so just not very balanced. Yeah, just not very balanced. That's exactly what it is. It's um, There's not a lot of sweetness there. Um, there's not a lot of complexity that I'm able to find because it's really just overpoweringly uh, alcohol forward and peaty, uh, which makes me think it's probably pretty young, um, probably under 10 years, uh, especially since they're not giving it an age statement. I mean, typically, uh, typically under eight years, if there's anything in there that's under eight years, they don't want to give it an age statement. Yeah. Is what I've found. Uh, a lot of three year in there, I'm sure. Yeah. You don't find a lot of like three, four year scotches, um, that actually have an age statement. And and this one definitely is uh, aggressive. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go on some comments here. So apparently our local shop should have the new Liga Pravadas on the 10th. Oh, uh, that's, that's very soon. I'm very excited. I'm looking forward to that. And actually, now that I think about it, Fabian's gonna be here that day. Oh um, yeah. And it's it's like uh, it's right up against our show. So I think I'm, I might have to push our show back a little bit just so I can go say hey to Fabian and buy some. Do it Liga live. Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll just I'll just go live from my phone. Stream it live from your phone. Um, Gerard Shelley says he's really really late and wants to know what's up with you, surgeon. Just enjoying the warm weather and some uh, delicious cigars from Warfighter Tobacco. Enjoying some delicious pairings and enjoying this warm weather. <clears throat> Man, if it's I mean if it's above sixty degrees, you know I'm outside smoking and drinking because it only lasts for a certain period of time and I love it. Um, I'm gonna move back to my other pairings because. I'm I'm disappointed that when I sit in front of the TV and I drink this Nadura peated whiskey cask finish, um, I get a lot more flavor from it than I do with a cigar for some reason. Mm. Uh, with a cigar, it just completely blows out my palate for a little bit. I actually think I need to drink some water to clear <clears> up. Copy that. I still have that like alcohol burn. <laughs> so I'm I'm actually really enjoying the cigar malt with a cigar. It's not my best pairing of the night. Um, but it's very enjoyable, and uh, I would revisit this bearing again, and probably will revisit with the 50 cal as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that 50 cal. I I haven't I don't think I've smoked any of the broadleaf stuff from Warfighter yet. Yeah, that's that's some of the ones that I've um, set aside that I want to sit down and um, really take my time and do a proper review because the guys there deserve it. And um, you know, uh, oh, and by the way, if you if you're looking to find out Warfighter, so if you Google Warfighter Tobacco Company. You can find their Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can check out their swag store. You can check out more about their cigars, uh, Warfighter Tobacco Company. Um, really cool site and uh, really cool guys. And like I said, check out the coverage that Trippy did at IPCPR 2017. Really good interview. Yeah, dog. Man, I just went back to the Lagavulin. And I think this Nadura might be peatier than I'm even giving it credit for. <laughs> because wow. the Lagavulin is just all sweet and nice now. <laughs> Um, I, I barely get any peat off this Lagavulin. Oh, this Johnny Walker Green Label is um is so light, so light compared to the Dalmar. I mean, it's just it's almost I would almost describe it as delicate next to the Dalmar because again, it's it's just not intended to be um, heavy and intense and um, 
you know, super, super scotch forward. It's supposed to be easy drinking. Um, so they are radically different on the strength scale. That's exactly what I'm looking at here. All three of my spirits tonight are radically different on the on the strength level. Like the the Glenlivet is just overpoweringly strong. The Zafra is friendly but oh, super so sweet. Super sweet. And then the Lagavulin is just kind of like in the middle there, where it's a little bit aggressive, but then it's got like a lot of uh, a lot of like light fruity notes, like almost citrusy. Getting a lot more cocoa now, halfway point of this uh, 762 Garrison, um, especially with the Zafra. Uh, it's really starting to bring out the cocoa. Yeah, yeah, I am getting a little more cocoa than I was before. It's nice. I, th- I think, um, you know, just kind of based on our pairings tonight, I think um, it. I could confidently say I would not hesitate to pair uh, ex-bourbon cask uh, whiskey with the uh, 762. I think that's a great pairing. And you could do a lot of rums, um, as long as they're not too sweet. I think rum is a, is a great pairing as well. I'd probably stay away from uh, bourbon, because I think bourbon might be a little hot. Yeah, I think a lot of bourbons might be a, might be a little too hot for this cigar. Um, oh, if, you're looking at, if you're looking at something that's closer to like a light whiskey, bourbon might be a good choice. But um, most bourbons are just too sweet and syrupy for, for a cigar like this. I think they're going to run over the... Uh, the elegance of the cigar and you know the easy pairing the easy choice of pairing here would be coffee coffee would be a no-brainer with this cigar absolutely yeah this would um this is one of those cigars um now that you mentioned coffee this would be a really good strong morning cigar Mm -hmm. Uh, like a lot of people just want something light like a connecticut in the morning but i i like something with a little bit of strength to it um and and this has that it's got yeah, that what, like richness that I think would go really well with coffee in the morning. Wouldn't give you the wobbly knees. I think it's um you know it's probably what I describe as medium full in, in flavor and medium in strength, right smack dab in the middle. Um, so if you know if you tend to smoke in the medium plus category, I think this would be fine for a starter cigar of the day. And we're going to uh, we're going to finish up our Armed Forces Radio Network segment here. Um, what is your pairing of the night, Surgeon? No question. It's the Johnny Walker. Um, before we wrap up our Armed Forces Radio Network segment, i got to do a shameless plug. Uh, check out developingpallets.com. We've got something special coming for you tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, check it out. A little surprise being launched on the site. Check it out. Oh, uh, I know what's coming. It's very exciting. I'm, I'm very excited to see it. Um. For me, the Lagavulin is the winner. Uh, I I wasn't expecting it to be the winner. I was expecting the Zafra to be the best one, right. um, but I feel like Scotch just like a a not too aggressive Scotch works really well with this. Cigar. Really well, yep. Um, and and as I don't, I I can't say that it's not the Nadura, but it but I think it probably is. Um, but the Lagavulin has gotten a lot friendlier. As the cigar has gone on, it could be the strength of the cigar ramping up a little bit, but I have a feeling it's the Nadura. Um, but still, it it just has a really good balance of strength going along with this cigar. It's not going to stop us from crushing a few bottles in Vegas. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, I, I'm sure you're correct. Um, <laughs> so thank you to Warfighter Cigars. If like like Surgeon said, if you haven't checked them out, go check them out. You can get some 
They've got some very reasonably priced samplers out there where you can try a couple from every line. Um, interestingly, they ship a lot of their stuff in travel humidors. So you can buy like um, basically a box of cigars, and instead of sending you a box or a bundle, they send you a, they send it to you in a travel humidor. Then you got a cool travel humidor. Um, so check them out. Thank you, of course, to all of our Armed Forces Radio Network listeners. We appreciate you guys out there doing things we are not built to do. Um, I had a I had a comment that that got to me a little bit uh, from a, a friend. I won't say who it is, just because I don't, I don't want to embarrass him possibly. But he said that when he was deployed overseas, he listened to the AFRN every day, and it was like a little piece of home. It was it was his connection to home while he he was out in the field, and he just appreciates that we that we push our content out over there, which, um, you know, it, it just means a lot to me that somebody would say that. So thank you to all of our Armed Forces Radio Network listeners. Thank you, of course, to all of our podcast listeners and everybody watching live on Facebook or watching, uh, watching the replay on YouTube. Um, we're going to get into our After Dark segment here. Um, so everybody have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. Peace. And now we're in our After Dark segment. I'm going to warn you guys, there are going to be spoilers for Infinity War. So many spoilers. If you are watching live and you have not watched Infinity War and you stop plan now. to, stop watching now. You can come back. You can watch it later. Uh, oh, did my dog get a cameo? Yeah, he's, he's back there licking my leather chair. Poppers. Um, yeah, don't send, don't, send me, don't send me angry uh, emails at john yeah. at uh, I I mean, <clears throat> I'm going to say, look. We gave you like a full two minutes of spoiler warnings. I'm uh, very anti, as you know, I rage about spoilers. You're the most anti-spoiler person I know. I want to punch people in the throat who spoil stuff. Like if somebody says that moment with Carl on Facebook, you're like, ah, spoilers, no. And you freak out. Um, Like it doesn't matter how minor it is. You're you're the most upset spoiler person I know. We're gonna ruin the movie if you haven't seen it. So first of all, go get a ticket because there's no reason why you could you shouldn't have seen it by now. Like go see it immediately. Yeah. Also stop the podcast, the live show, and come back to it after you've seen the show. Yeah, seriously, come back to it. Uh, We'll we'll be here when you get back. Don't worry about it. And with that said, we're now entering the spoiler section. If everybody did, if you are still everybody did. If you're still watching, the spoilers have started. Everybody um, dead. Yeah, dude, that ending was rough. I mean, we all know that. Uh... All right, so so I first didn't know of all, George R. R. Martin was the director behind this movie. What the hell, dude? I know, like they kill, like in the Savage. last five minutes of the movie, they kill off like eighteen characters. And, it's and, insane. And if you didn't and know then the for movie sure just that fades to black and it's over. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't know better, like if you if it was directed by George R. R. Martin, you'd be like, how can they come out with the most successful black superhero in history with an awesome kick-ass movie like Black Panther and then just do him like that and kill him off? But I mean, you know, you know, he's not dead. Come on. I mean, first of all, I'm first in line to see Black Panther 2. Um, I mean, yeah. Come on. That, that's the thing is uh, Black Panther's already got a sequel. Uh, Tom Holland accidentally said they've got two Spider-Man sequels coming. Uh, we already know there's another Gallons, so funny. Guardians of the Galaxy. Dude, I watched uh, like a, a mashup of Tom Holland accidentally revealing things. Mm-hmm. And like just just everybody from the cast. Like, Have you seen the interview yeah, yeah. on... I, I don't remember what it was on. It was on like Good Morning America or something mm-hmm. with Don Cheadle and Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, yeah. And they were... Prom- this was back in November. They were promoting... Yeah. Uh, 
Thor. They were promoting yeah. Thor Ragnarok. And he's like, oh, where do you see the next movie? <laughs> I mean, it's a doozy. Like, everybody dies. And Don Cheadle is like, dude, 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 dude. And he's like, I mean, not everybody, but like half. And he's like, no, stop. And he's you like got, you gotta, him. You got you to gotta see the interview with Bunderdack Cumbersnitch. Um, and and, um, and he kind of, he's like, stop, 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 stop. Shut up, shut up, shut well, yeah. up in the middle of the interview. Tom Holland where they ask Tom Holland a question about Spider-Man. And Benedict Cumberbatch is like, I'll take this one, Tom. I'll take this one, and shut up. just answers the question because he knows Tom Holland just can't keep his shit together. Can't like, keep Tom it. Holland said in several interviews, they won't let me read the scripts anymore. Uh-huh. He gets the Spider-Man pages and that's it. Can I just say, um, in all the performances in the movie, and there's a lot of really strong performances across the board, uh, Tom Holland, to me, probably stole the show in that death sequence. I mean, I don't, I'm not, oh, you man. know, I'm a, I'm, I like to think I'm a tough guy. I don't tear up, you know, the, I can count on one hand the amount of movies I've teared up at, and they're all pretty intense, like Schindler's List and uh, Saving Private Ryan. When Tom Holland laid out that death sequence, I was just like, bro. I mean, it was rough. Yeah, it was rough. And I, I really appreciate that he was the only one that got that. Uh-huh. Everybody else is a superhero. They, like, they're all prepared to die at any moment because yeah. they're superheroes. They're going around flying all over the galaxy, saving the world and stuff. You know, they're, they're aware things are going to happen. But he's a kid who's in school. And I like the fact that they didn't have, like, this elaborate death sequence for everybody. Yeah. Like, most people were just like, oh, shit. And then that was it. Uh, but him, he had this, that, um, oh, so emotional. I felt really bad for Scarlet Witch. I mean, first of all, um, she had to, she had to kill Vision, which was, I mean, that's, that's rough. That was hard to watch too. But, but then to bring him back and kill him again. I mean, you talk about Robert Downey Jr.'s character, um, Tony Stark having PTSD for like a million years. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Scarlet, Scarlet's got a little bit of that, but I mean, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Tony Stark, Iron Man, has been through so much negative stuff. Um, and, you know, to see Tom Holland and, and you, you know, you saw it in the Spider-Man movie. He was trying to keep this kid away from harm because yeah. he didn't want to see anybody else get killed. And then this kid is killed in front of him. And, you know, he's taking right or wrong. He, he's taking 100 percent of the begging. Fault. He's begging for him to do something. And there's mm-hmm. nothing he can do. It's just uh, it's just the way it is. So. Um, I thought the um, the sequence between uh, Tony Stark and Doctor Strange, I I laughed. I laughed. I was probably the loudest guy in the theater. I, I did like the full belly guffaw um, when they were when they're sniping at each other because I'm like, yeah, here's two guys who are like the biggest narcissist, uh, self-important, self-focused guys, and they hate each other. They hate each other from the moment they're in scene. They just hate mm-hmm. each other. And it's like, yeah, those two characters are so alike. No yeah. wonder they hate each other. And the, and the characters don't realize it. And can we talk about Thanos for a minute? Ooh, wow. I mean, dude. Uh, so people praised uh, Black Panther as, as having, like, basically the first villain with, like, a, an actual motivation. Yeah, he, Michael, um, I forget his last name. Um, Michael B. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Um, he did a fantastic job. Uh, because so often the, the, the villains have been two-dimensional. and it's, it's they're cardboard just, They cutouts, just want right? destruction. Right. That's all it is. They just want and, to kill everybody and that's it. And you find yourself kind of 
feeling for the guy and almost siding with him. You're like, no, I kind of see where he's coming from. Like, that's bullshit. They did this guy wrong. He kind of has a point. And like halfway through the movie of Black Panther, you're like, you know what? He kind of, I kind of am almost siding with this guy. He kind of has a point. So that was really well done. Yeah. But, but I think they, they kind of did the same thing with Thanos. Like they oh, yeah. really made Thanos a character who seemed like he believed in what he was doing. And For he sure. thought he was the hero in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, he really did. Which I like, I had thought Thanos was going to come in like based on, a, you know, all of the end credit sequence and stuff that we've seen over the last 10 years. I thought Thanos was going to be like, all right, here I am. Let's destroy the galaxy. Um, but that wasn't it at all. He didn't want to, he didn't want to hurt anybody, but he felt like it had to be done. And he was the only person that had the, uh, that had the willpower to actually do it. And how about, how about, um, props for a movie that starts out with an opening sequence? That's like, (laughs) like you don't go from zero to 60. You are at 60 from the moment the movie starts out. You get one of arguably one of the best fight sequences of the movie with, um, Hulk versus Thanos. And I mean, I was rooting for Hulk to just wipe the floor with them. And uh, you kind of get this weird whimper from, from Hulk. And it was just, it was heartbreaking. Well, yeah. And then the fact that he, he's afraid to come out for the rest mm-hmm. of the movie, which I'm, I'm excited to see what they do with the next one. Um, like about why he's was like that exactly. Because um, Hulk is strongest of all. And uh, maybe not so much. Yeah, he really... Uh... Thanos really put him in his place. And um, also the um, the sub baddie. I can't remember the character's name. Um, but The, uh, the, the child mis- of Thanos. The child of Thanos. Um, so often you get these sub characters, right, that are that are kind of the, the sub boss. I mean, it's it's um, in Hong Kong action movies, you see this a lot. The sub boss is sometimes stronger mm-hmm. than the big boss. Uh, he was just as entertaining for me as Thanos was. And as a huge movie nerd, and, you know, Rob from a bacho contest to this. Um, when Tom Holland dropped the, uh, the aliens thing, I was like, Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Aliens. And, uh, Laura kind of looks at me funny and I'm like, I know exactly what's going to happen right now. And, uh, yeah. Blow him out the airlock, man. You, yeah. You, that part you was awesome. magical powers. You don't, you don't got that, um, princess Leia power, man. You don't get that princess Leia. You're going out in space dog. Yeah. You just freeze and that's it. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happened. Um, I'm trying to remember what else is worth mentioning, because there's there a lot of stuff happens. <laughs> how about, <laughs> excuse me, how about um, oh gosh, I can't remember his name. This is so embarrassing. Um, from Game of Thrones, uh, with the surprise cameo, which I didn't expect. Uh, Tyrion. Oh yeah, Peter Dinklage. Peter Dinklage, uh, as the giant dwarf. As dwarf. As the giant dwarf, yeah. Uh, I I thought that was really clever. Mm-hmm. Um, having, I, I've read a lot of comic books, but I, I never made it to, in, to the like entire infinity war series. Um, it's a so lot. I, I'm missing a lot of those characters. Like I, I read civil war and I read whatever the most, whatever the kind of recent one was that I can't remember the name of. Uh, it was the one that was, had a lot to do with guardians of the galaxy. The watchers were involved. Right. Um, Whatever it so, is, when the watcher dies. And they so, have to... so I got to I got to go back and watch this movie at least two or three more times because someone pointed yeah. out to me this morning that in the scene when they're on the um, they're on the anvil there, um, there's a sequence in the background because the Russo brothers love to do this stuff. R two D two is sitting in a pile, 
in the background. In really, the I didn't. I didn't. I hadn't heard about that one, and mm-hmm. I certainly didn't catch it. I did hear about the. Uh, I saw pictures of the Tobias Funk one. Right, which I didn't get at all. I missed that uh, entirely. I completely missed it, and it's a, uh, like having seen some of the screenshots of it, it's pretty prominent. Mm. I don't know how I missed that. I mean, the problem with this movie, if there's a problem, is that there's a lot of people complain about the length, which I don't, I don't get. Yeah, I but mean, it's pretty long. It's two and a half hours. Sure, but, but if you've ever sat through um, Dances with Wolves in a the theater, you know. Like you want to talk long, dog? Go watch Dances with Wolves in the theater. That movie was like three hours and three and a half hours, almost four hours long. Yeah, I've uh, seen a lot of three-hour movies in the movie. Yeah, they they had. I mean, this this, I, I I this is probably a bad analogy, but to me it was a little bit like Saving Private Ryan. This movie started out at full bore, and it didn't. There was didn't really let no up. let up. It didn't let up the entire time. Uh, there were a couple like talky scenes, but mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part, it's pretty action-packed like mm. it's it's really at its core it's really just a dumb popcorn movie with action all over the place so thor went from kind of oh one my of my God. like like i like thor he's an enjoyable I character mean, Ragnar- ragnarok brought him up a couple notches for ragnarok me. brought him up a couple notches um but he was kind of a low-tier character in the marvel universe in the in the movie universe for me i liked him in the comics but in the movie universe kind of eh. um they really elevated his character and the scene where they're uh, forging Stormbreaker, and then they threw in the twist with um, with uh, Groot uh, being oh, handled. that was awesome. I that love was that was nuts, crazy. I lo- I loved that part. Like, I don't know. That that was another part where it was like, you know, I mean, it it got me feeling a little emotional. Like, yeah. it's just like you know, Groot made that sacrifice for him, who's yeah. actually apparently the son of Groot. I just recently found out. Mm. Um, Makes a lot more sense because he really doesn't have Groot's personality. In fact, um, I would actually say that, um, I mean, it's really tough to, to shove that many characters into a movie like this and give them all scenes. Um, I kind of felt like Groot was a little overplayed in this. Um, yeah, I mean, all his... he was doing was playing his Game Boy the whole time. Yeah. Um, which I, I liked that he was doing that because that's the stage my five-year-old is in right now. Like He just <laughs> he brings his DS everywhere and just wants to play Pokemon all the time. Um, but, uh, I loved that they did that with group, but I felt like he had, he just had a little too much like screen time comparatively because uh, like you said, there's, I mean, I don't know the number, but there's probably 18 to 25 characters Mm -hmm. who are like main characters in other movies and are an ensemble in this movie. I think the thing that they did really well or really smartly is that they got us, they got all of the backstory out of the way for every character in other movies. So this way it's all characters you're already familiar with and you don't need to pack in like, who's that guy? Who's that guy? Who's that guy? You don't need to explain who anybody is because if you're going to see this movie, you've probably seen most of the other movies. I did love the, um, simple, but hilarious and too true to character scene between, um, Winter Soldier and and uh, Rocket. Oh um, yeah. Rocket's like, uh, hey, uh, how much for that gun? How much for that gun? It's not for sale. Okay. Uh, how much? How much for that arm? He's like, I'm I'm gonna get that arm, man. I'm I'm getting that arm off of you. And like you know, he's he's gonna come, He wants that arm. He's gonna get. He wants that yeah, arm. He's gonna try. He's to gonna take go it. for it. Uh, so one thing that somebody pointed out is with 
almost no exception. I think there's one or two exceptions. Only the original, uh, the the original Avengers survive the movie. That's true. The only exception that I know of is I've I've heard from some people that Rocket Raccoon survived, but I feel like in my he's, mind he's the only he's the only Guardian left. Okay. Other than um um, what's her? But she's not a Guardian, so she doesn't count. Yeah, Rockets. Oh. Rockets. Look look at me. Look at me. I'm the captain now. Yeah, he really is now. Finally, yeah. he got what he wanted. Uh, I don't know how happy he'll be about it. Um, but yeah, the, right, the original like, Avengers, the only guys left. The end was heartbreaking to watch. Like, yeah. you're expecting some like light at the end of the tunnel, and then it just fades to black and it's over. It's very um, Empire Strikes Back. Like, all your yes, hope has been taken away, right? All your hope has been taken away. Thanos won. Everyone is dead. Everyone, Everyone is lost. broken. Um, but we all know in the next movie they're gonna like uh, get the get the time stone back and go back in time and undo pretty much all of this. Like the only people who I see not coming back are really like maybe Vision. Probably I think Gamora's I think, coming back. I think Gamora's coming back. I think Vision's gonna be back. I think that um, Loki might be dead for sure. Uh, Lo- Loki is the one that I think is. Very low chance that he's coming back. Mm-hmm. But I think everybody else is going to come back. I mean, a lot of people like... <laughs> so So one thing that I hadn't thought about that somebody mentioned to me is like, imagine bringing your, your I don't know, eight-year-old to this movie. <laughs> I'm going to be Spider-Man when I grow up. And then all of their heroes are killed. Dead. Vaporized. And, you know, as a child of... Uh, grow, born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s. So a child of the 80s. People are spoiled because if this movie was made in the eighties, dog, you got to wait 12 years yeah, for yeah. the next movie. And this, the next, the Avengers They've four already filmed coming the next out movie. May. It's coming out in yeah. May. You get, you get actually, you actually get uh, three more Marvel movies. I think three more Marvel movies. You get to cap, um, Captain Marvel followed by Avengers four next year at this time. So yeah. like people are well, so in, spoiled in like three weeks. Ant-Man comes out, right? Um, which uh, I'm very curious to see where they go with Ant-Man. Yeah, I don't know I, where it's placed in the universe timeline. I feel like it has to be before this. It has to be. Um, like, Or else they're going to spend the entire movie being like, why did all these people just turn to dust? What's happening? Oh, um, oh, oh. Um, fantastic job of uh, almost fitting in Samuel L. Jackson's catchphrase. In oh, the, yeah. Yet. Yeah, that was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like, like seeing the Captain Marvel thing, it was like, Captain Marvel's gonna be, um, oh, Evan Kirshner says he knows that, uh, or at least he thinks that, uh, Ant-Man is, takes place before this movie, which makes, that makes would sense. make total sense. Uh, I've heard that Captain Marvel takes place mostly during the 90s. That's what I heard as well, yeah. Um, so I would guess that it's gonna take place during the 90s, and then we're gonna see, like, 20 years later, and, uh, either somebody, like, uh, time travel is going to be a thing now for sure. For sure. Um, so I could see either Captain Marvel going through time to get here or just like flashing forward in the, in the after credit sequence or something like that. Um, because Captain Marvel, as, as the producers of the Marvel movies have said, Captain Marvel is going to be immensely powerful, the most powerful character we've ever seen. And, uh, 
I think she's going to play the part of like, like I said, I don't know a lot about the Infinity War in the comic books, but I know that uh, what's his name? Warlock was yes. like Warlock was the big deal. I think yeah. she's going to be the Warlock of Infinity War Part Two. Yeah, I think I think that serves as sort of the um, the sort of lead into Avengers Four while still being a standalone property, and I think they're probably going to do a great job. Um, I'm also kind of excited uh, for Guardians of the Galaxy Three because it sounds like they're going to lead into us another yeah. Guardians property. And well, so what they've Rupert said, Sylvester Stallone. What, what they've said is basically that Guardians of the Galaxy Three is the jump-off point of the next arc so like thanos has been a 10-year arc of of 17 movies 18 movies right um and crazy guardians of the galaxy part three is going to be the jumping off point of the next like 10-year arc in the marvel universe um and i think so oh this is another theory that i told my wife as soon as we finished watching the movie did i lose surgeon he like froze up on the screen okay uh so this is something I said to my wife as we were leaving the theater is I think this is going to this is going to be the point where like Cap and Iron Man and a couple other characters kind of pass the mantle. Yes. Um, because they're, you know, obviously, as everybody knows, they're reaching the end of their contracts. Uh, a lot of them are probably tired of playing these characters after 10 years, mm-hmm. um, even though uh, I heard a report that Robert Downey Jr. got two hundred million dollars for this movie, wow. um, which had a budget of three hundred million. Wow, uh, which um, I mean, that's not to say that 200 million came out of the 300 million because I'm sure a lot of his merchandising and box office and all that stuff. But still, um, uh, if he's willing to give up the paycheck, I could see him passing on Iron Man to somebody else. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where we're going to see that transition that it I mean, that happens in the comics where people take over as the characters age out. Uh, and then, you know, so, okay, so there's been a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pushback to the Disney franchises and the um, Marvel franchises and comic book franchises about that. And I think people don't realize that there's a 50 year history of this. Like, to me, like, if you're, um, if you're a fan of Doctor Who, one of the things I love yeah. about Doctor Who, right, is, is that they bring in a new character that's the same character, but a new character within the same universe, within the same franchise. And I love the idea that they could bring in a fresh cap you know, whatever, whatever ethnic background he's got, whatever gender he's got, I don't care because I I have confidence that the helm that's behind this is going to do a fantastic job with the story writing and they're going to continue that storyline on and it's going to be great. And I'm kind of excited to see who they pass the torch to on these various properties. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's like in movies we're we're used to seeing in movies and TV shows, they just replace the actor or they reboot the franchise. I don't think I don't think we're going to see a reboot of this franchise of the the Marvel Cinematic Universe for like 30 years mm-hmm. uh, because they're going to continue it, but they're going to find ways to move people out and move new people in as they've done with the comic books. I mean, and in comic books, they don't even need to do that. There's no reason they need to do that. Mm-hmm. They just do it because they can make the story more interesting. If Cap is now an old guy that you see and he's, you know, he's. He's still Captain America, but he's he's older now. He's aged. He's not in fighting condition. He doesn't want to fight anymore. Um, and he's got people who are younger and better at it than he ever was. Yeah. So I'm I'm excited to see where they go with it. Um, mm-hmm. 
Oh man, that was a rough way to end the movie. Yeah, it was. I mean, you could see it. <clears throat> there was so many people in the audience, like people were audibly saying, "Like, what the hell just happened?" Yeah. And so many people walked out of that movie just shocked. And it, you know, I think I get that because, um, you know, this is me kind of poo-pooing American culture. But um, one of the things as a Canadian I love about English culture and Hong Kong films is that they don't they don't have any problems. Ending the good a guy movie doesn't on, always have to win. That's right. The bad guy wins a lot. And sometimes, you know, Empire Strikes Back is probably one of the most famous American culture movies where the bad guy wins at the end and everyone leaves. And it's still a really satisfying experience. Now, um, it was it was definitely a little unsatisfying to see all these people die and Thanos win. And you're like and you don't feel like any of it's wrapped up. Yeah. Um, but it, in a lot of ways, I think that's probably good for the franchise because, you know, sometimes good things don't happen at the end. And uh, sometimes the good guys don't win, uh, although I'm sure they'll win eventually. Yeah, and I think in a few years when you when you watch the movies back to back, it'll be it'll be the way Empire Strikes Back is to people now. Right. Like, yeah, everybody loses at the end, but five minutes later you watch Return of the Jedi, <laughs> and then every, all the good guys win everything. Exactly. Um, so I, I think that's what we're gonna see. Are, also, are you um, holding on to your flag. Yeah. So it doesn't blow away. Okay, mm-hmm. just checking. Mm-hmm. So I'm holding on to the Nicaraguan flag as a symbol to hold on for the people. I don't know. Um, there's a, there's a great sequence, a great sequence um, at the end when they're fighting Thanos, and uh, Doctor Strange is uh, creating these portals for Superman or uh, Spider-Man to jump through, and uh, there's the the little cam like the little comments. He's like, Spider-Man punch, Spider-Man yeah. kick. And like it's it's like just a little bit of levity, and you know that's what I think the Marvel universe is so good at is bringing levity to sequences. You know, like Gamora feeling Thor's arms, and uh, yeah. and everyone's like, stop touching his arms. And then you know they my did arms a really are just, good job of that in this movie. My arms are just as good as his. And Raccoon turns to him and says, um, <clears throat> "You're one sandwich away from being fat." <laughs> <laughs> oh god that part was so good like, and then he gets all self-conscious didn't he say something like uh we all everybody in this room has been thinking for a while you're one sandwich away from getting fat um so dude, that funny. was hilarious did but, you just yeah, keep in your voice really why you do at. that to your voice i'm not I, i'm not doing anything to my voice th- that's one thing marvel is so good at is they they set a tone near the beginning of the movie and then they yeah. carry that tone throughout. And yeah. this movie, it was all over the map, mm-hmm. but because we had seen it so many times before, it makes sense and it works. Well, I mean, great job of carrying on three or four independent storylines happening within the same movie and then threading them all together within the same... Like, you don't see that a lot in a lot of movies, especially with this many moving parts in a, in this many characters, but they did a fantastic job of you know, not only uh, a storyline independent of what's going on in the main storyline, with this, like the Guardians felt like a Guardians movie. The the Avengers yeah. piece felt like an Avengers piece. The Black Panther piece felt like a Black Panther piece. And they and then they kind of weaved it all together at the end, and it felt seamless. It didn't feel um, like there was a s- sudden shift in the tone of the movie. Yeah, and uh, what I was thinking, I I really want to see somebody recut the movie. So that it's in, uh, so that each segment is in chronological order. That'd be cool. I'm just interested in seeing how that works in it. That'd be interesting. But then, you uh, know what? I think the problem it, with it that, it may though, not is, work at all. Yeah, I think that's maybe where you'd run into 
um, it'd feel very jarring to go from uh, a, a style within yeah. one movie or one sequence to the next sequence that's, um, you know, whatever. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I just think it would be an interesting experiment. Great movie. Yeah. And it, was, it, it, it um, set records again, didn't it? Set opening weekend oh, records. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it, it broke uh, whatever the last movie was, Black Panther or Justice League, I think. Black Panther. Black pa- Black Panther was the um yeah, reached I think it was since Iron Man uh or maybe it was Avengers it reached uh it was like on Saturday. Didn't even need the Sunday where it beat the records. But that was yeah. I mean Black Panther was awesome. Yeah, it, it and it's it's insane to me that a movie with a budget of 300 million dollars, which I mean f- for people who aren't familiar with movie budgets, that doesn't even include the probably 500 million they spent on marketing. Yeah. Um, that's just the, the cost to finish filming and editing the movie. Um, for them to make back that entire budget in a weekend is crazy. So I learned a little piece of movie trivia, um, when I was talking about the, uh, the new Avengers movie. Um, so if you go back, I watched the original Avengers movie, which by the way, has a super different tone and style, which I really enjoyed. Um, but at the end of the sequence, uh, the big swarm the big swarm outtake at the end, there's a sequence where Cap's got his kind of fist against his face, and his face is kind of hidden, and he doesn't speak in the shawarma sort of outtake at the end. Uh, the reason for that is that Marvel wisely realized the the sequence was filmed after the movie, and Chris Evans had already gone on to another uh, movie. He had grown a beard, and instead of <sighs> trying to CG out the beard. They realized, well, that's just going to look stupid. And so they just filmed it. Here's a little tip, Warner Brothers. (laughs) (laughs) Don't try to edit out facial hair. Doesn't work. It looks terrible. Which, by the way, I watched Justice League. It was just awful. I haven't watched it yet, but I have very little. It's so terrible. So, insanely, I read over the weekend, I was talking to my buddy about, like, I was just kind of speculating what the budget of, and that's how I know it's $300 million because I looked it up. Um, apparently, uh, until this came out, Justice League had the, high, had the third highest budget ever. Wow. What'd they spend it on? Exactly. So bad. And Wonder Woman within the DC franchise was the movie that I was expecting to be a complete flop. And ended up being, um, within the new DC universe, ended up being my favorite movie of all the new movies they made in DC, by far. Yeah, absolutely. The Superman movies were just not very good. Um, Like, Suicide Squad introduced Batman a little bit, but it was 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 just not a good movie at all. Not a good movie. Uh, And then Batman vs. Superman was awful. Like, the the feel I got from Batman vs. Superman, I mean, this isn't a Batman vs. Superman after dark segment but the feeling that i got from batman vs superman was that no this isn't even spoilers was that they were basically like all right well we have these three comic books yeah really cool sequences just mash them together how do we make that into a movie so terrible it's so it was so amateurish like that whole part where he's like i i don't remember it it was like the dream sequence that batman had where he had a gun and which could have been cool by the way that could have been a super that felt like x-men to me I was like, this is a really cool sequence, and then they just... Yeah, but it was like, what the hell is happening here? Yeah. Like, it didn't make any sense within no. the movie. And, 
X Men franchise, by the way, comes under um, comes under the umbrella of uh, Marvel now, from 20th Century Fox. Uh, suck it, 20th Century Fox. Oh. I wish you would all burn in hell. Stop making TV properties and stop making movie properties. I hate that studio. Mo- I can't even tell you the amount of hatred that I feel for 20th Century Fox because all of the great television properties that they've made over the years, starting with, and this will take you back, to Space Above and Beyond, which was the precursor to allow uh, movie or TV franchises like Firefly to come out. Mm-hmm. And they killed it. They killed it just like they killed Firefly after one season. And I hope 20th Century... They didn't kill Fox. Firefly after one season. They killed Firefly after like one episode mm. and then just aired the rest of the season yeah, out of enough. order like insane people. And, and and out of order, by the way. Um, but yeah, they're taking over the X-Men franchise from 20th Century Fox. And I'm extremely excited to see what Disney and the Marvel group and the Marvel writers can do. It's going to be so exciting. Um, like, th- to their credit, they've done some cool stuff. Logan was pretty good. Logan was uh, great. You probably haven't watched Legion because I don't think anybody watched it. Bro. But that Legion, movie, Legion that, the TV series or yeah, Legion the movie? The show. Oh, dude, I watched that. Uh, dude, that that is, show's amazing. Dude, Okay, so for those who are still tuned in and have uh, obviously seen X Men or um, uh, Avengers: Infinity War, if you aren't watching Legion, the TV series, you're missing out on one of the most unique television comic book uh, series on the market because it is so different from anything else. It is so it's like different from anything that's ever been on television. Yeah, it's it's like it's one part horror, with one part gothic, with one part like I don't even know how to describe it. It's so bizarre and so funky, and I like it's one of the top three shows now. Like when we're, so, Expanse is number one for me right now. Westworld is number two. Oh, Legion is number three. The moment Legion comes out, I gotta watch it because it's so interesting. We're we're awful, so we haven't we haven't watched any of the second season of Legion yet. But <laughs> I I loved the first season so much. Well, you got to start watching the second season because um, they oh, absolutely see people in the comments like it. Evan Kirshner watches it. Chris Kelly from Ezra Zion watches it. Dude, it's so Dude, funky. That... It's so weird Dude. and cool and psychedelic and like seventies and it's just awesome. Seventies yeah. is the right way to put it. It's I love that it's it's filmed from the protagonist's viewpoint, mm-hmm. which is an insane person. And Somebody it's completely. Somebody whose mind plays tricks on them, and they—he's an unreliable narrator. Yes, that's his, great. His phrase. internal narrative is unreliable. Mm. That's what makes it so good is that he doesn't even understand what's going on half the time. And uh, props to Aubrey Plaza, who was <laughs> kind of a throwaway character in the show. Aubrey Plaza is really the counter crazy to his main crazy, and like she is just like it's like um I don't know I'm trying to think of an actor that's that's similar and I, i'm kind of struggling because she's just it's like the director There's said it's, like her. yeah it's just like we want you to just embrace your crazy and just go with it in every scene and she's just like completely off a rocker and she's in the background in some scenes you can't even focus on the conversation because she's just in the background yeah. doing crazy things and it's so entertaining yeah i i adore that show maybe i should mm-hmm. i should convince my wife to to stay up and watch that tonight. We, we can't stop watching it. Laura and I can't stop watching it because it's just, it's so funky and weird. And I'm just so through with Arrow and Flash. I mean, that that's the thing is like, D, 
DC just can't get it together, man. I don't know what the problem like, is, man. Everything is segmented, and they're trying to really rush the movies. Like it was like, um, they made Superman. It was like, all right, that was successful. Let's do an entire universe now. So terrible. And then Jessica Jones two comes out, and I like I loved it more than Jessica Jones one. Um, super excited for Luke Cage. Yeah. See, I feel like um, that's that's the big difference in the way that WB does their shows and the way that Marvel does their shows is they're part of the universe, but they're characters who are so inconsequential yeah. within the larger scheme of things that they don't matter at the movie scale. But that's why you make a TV show about them. By and the then, way, Agents of Sealed has sucked for like two or three seasons. And uh, my fiance just stopped watching because, I mean, it got I, so bad. So this season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was like the best season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Like it was, I don't know if they fired the writing staff or they threatened them, uh, but the season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was actually like engaging and fantastic and amazing. I couldn't stop watching it. And uh, if they can make the next next season like this, it'll be great. Uh, but well, well, the next yeah. season, half of the characters are going to be gone. Spoiler! They're just going to... They're just gonna have like turned to dust in between seasons. Don't you kill Colson? Don't you kill Colson? Not again. I can't I can't do that one again. That's one that I can't do twice. Yeah. All um right. so people are lucky. Like I said, they're very lucky that they have to wait less than twelve months to see follow up uh Marvel movies. If you're a child of the eighties, you'd be waiting at least ten years, maybe twelve years to see a follow up movie and, and then and, and then half the actors would be different people. Mm-hmm. Probably more than half. Like Yeah. Um, Spider-Man would come back and he'd be a completely different actor and they oh. would just never address it. Um, props I, to Tom Holland, man. Killed it. as Spider-Man. Yeah, he really like, it, it's crazy. Cause Spider-Man is, is one superhero that every time they reboot Spider-Man, it's better than the last time. Yes. And Spider-Man is, is the one that kicked off superhero movies, which is not something that, well, I would, I would argue with that. So this is my movie nerd. My boy Wesley Snipes <clears throat> Blade kicked off the goodness. Everyone talks about the X-Men franchise as being the uh, the movie franchise that kicked off uh, superhero franchises being good. I disagree. Blade was the first serious movie franchise with a black main actor that showed you you could make a serious superhero movie other than the 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 bad guy which was just awful uh but every other part of that movie was so well done uh that elevated the entire possibility of what was what what you could do with a movie franchise with comic book heroes that's true but the problem is 60 plus percent of people who saw blade in the theater had no idea he was from a comic book yeah no of course um spider-man was the first one that was like Oh yeah, I know Spider-Man. I read those comic books when I was a kid. That was the first one that kicked off like the whole craze of yeah. of superhero movies. Um, as much as I love Blade, because I do, um, but like Peter Peter Parker, um, what was the first? Tobey Maguire. His Spider-Man was like it was Spider-Man like we'd never seen him before, and it was amazing. Yes. yes. And I adore I adore Sam Raimi. I've loved him. Since he's a kid. weird, he's a weird cat, and he, but he makes entertaining movies for sure. And the everybody hated Spider-Man three, but I loved it because it was the most Sam Raimi of the three. Yeah, Spider-Man two I thought was better because I thought the portrayal of Doc Ock was just um, 
very underappreciated. I thought that that was, again, one of the things where you could take a bad guy and you could make the movie, like you could, you could empathize with this bad guy and he was highly entertaining. It wasn't a two dimensional cardboard cutout. Um, Mm. yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and then Andrew Garfield, I had very low expectations for him. Um, but he, he was the first time that we saw like quippy Spider-Man in a movie. Yeah, so I look at the Andrew Garfield thing and I go, that to me is like one of those characters where he, he plays a great um, uh, Peter Parker, but he doesn't play a great Spider-Man. And I think Batman sort of I falls felt the other way that. around. Really? I, I felt like he was better as Spider-Man than he was as Peter Parker. Interesting. Interesting. That's... We're gonna have to agree to disagree, uh, but it, but I thought that was kind of like with Batman. That's what the the franchise kind of fails is that you either have a good Batman and a bad Bruce Wayne, or you have a yeah. good Bruce Bruce Wayne and a bad Batman. And a lot of people talked about, um, you know, in the recent incarnation, uh, he's a great Bruce Wayne and a terrible Batman. Yeah, and then the previous one, Christian Bale, he was a fantastic Batman, but crazy really not good great. Batman. Yeah, he wasn't really believable as Bruce Wayne. As Bruce Wayne. I hadn't thought about it that way. I know, right? Also, um, totally off topic. Um, I am so excited for the revitalization of um, the Karate Kid. Uh, Didn't it come out today? Did it come out today? I keep seeing ads on YouTube for it today. Because, okay, so for those of you who are still tuned in, uh, if you've not seen, there's a a, a movie reviewer guy who talks about um, Daniel in... Karate Kid as being the villain of Karate Kid, and you got to watch this video because it's just incredible. Uh, because it will make you 100% believe that Daniel is the villain of Karate Kid, and I was like, that's a really interesting concept and completely believable. And then you watch the trailer for the new Karate Kid, and that's exactly what they've done. Daniel is the villain. He was he was movie. beating up on the Cobra Kai. He's beating up a Cobra Kai and Cobra Kai guy has become Daniel from the original movie trying to, you know, elevate these kids that are having a rough time in the street and protecting these kids. And Daniel's Daniel's the bully. Yeah. He's a a sleazy car dealer now. Right. (laughs) I'm really excited to watch that too. All right. got to wrap this up. Um, This has been the Marvel hour with John and Tripp. Uh, we'll be back. I'll be back tomorrow with Enrique from 1502 Cigars. Uh, and then Relax and enjoy. Exactly. And then next week we'll be back with sharing our pairings and hopefully another episode of, of uh, Cigar Chat. So we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for watching and have a good one.